First, a gentle warning. This podcast can be a hard listen at times and includes themes of violence, mental distress and racism. It's something you might need to consider before listening. Early on Sunday, 3rd of May 2015, Police Scotland's control room starts to receive calls. Hello, there's a man with a knife, a black man on Hayfield Road in Kirkcaldy. Police arrive at the scene and within minutes, Sheku Bayo is down on the ground. After being restrained by up to six officers, he stops breathing. Many details of what happened that morning are in dispute. His devastated family are still searching for answers. They want to know what role race played in Sheku's death. They claim he is Scotland's George Floyd. Sheku died here in Scotland and I am fighting, we as a family are fighting for changes to happen in Scotland. No family should suffer the way that we are suffering. Please refute this. Now a public inquiry, launched in May last year, is trying to find out what really happened. Its purpose is to seek to ascertain the truth. And to that purpose, I am fully committed. Welcome to Sheku Bio, The Inquiry, a podcast series from The Ferret. Episode 2, A Medical Emergency. I'm Karen Goodwin, co-editor and journalist for The Ferret. And I'm Tamiwa Fullerin-Shaw, a freelance writer, editor and presenter. Welcome back to our podcast, Sheku Bayou, The Inquiry, which aims to summarise the evidence heard so far in the first hearing of the public inquiry into his death. Last time, we looked at the timetable of events that led up to Sheku's death a subject that the inquiry has devoted many, many hours to. Much of the evidence heard so far was in relation to the 75 seconds that it took between the first police officers arriving at Hayfield Road in Kirkcaldy, where Sheku was last seen with a knife, and pinning him down on the ground. If you didn't listen to episode one, we'd suggest you go back to that first. In this episode, we'll look in more detail about the evidence that's been heard by the inquiry on the role that race may have played in Sheku's death. The last hearing of this inquiry, expected in 2024, will deal specifically with race. But by its nature, it's embedded in every part of the process. In questioning, mostly led by senior counsel Angela Graham KC, the inquiry team is trying to establish if police attitudes, whether conscious or otherwise, may have led officers to treat Sheku differently because he was black. But first, let's look at what's already known about attitudes to race and the police. So what do we know about the makeup of Police Scotland? Police Scotland was established in 2013 and is responsible for policing across the country. Prior to that, there were eight forces. It's the second largest force in the UK after the Metropolitan Police. But in terms of diversity, it's not really representative of Scotland. The most recent Police Scotland figures show less than a third of officers are women and just 253 out of 17,693 officers are from a black, Asian or minority ethnic background. That's about 1% of the force. We know that some people dislike the term BAME 
So we're going to avoid it where possible. But sometimes we'll use these categories because we're reporting on statistics gathered this way. For comparison, in the last census in 2011, about 4% of the population identified as black, Asian or minority ethnic. It's expected that's much higher now. The percentage had doubled since the previous census in 2001. So how diverse was the police force in Kirkcaldy back in 2015? Several officers told the inquiry team there were no black officers in the station. Here's PC Kayleigh Good. How many of your colleagues were black? Um, none, I don't think. So the police force has a representation issue. That's also true of a lot of organisations and industries, including the media, of course. Right. But research would suggest that it is a critical issue for the police that still needs urgent attention. A review led by Dame Ailish Angelini and published in 2020 heard evidence that although there was a drive to recruit officers from black communities, the experiences of some recruits caused them to leave the profession, often within three to five years. A year later, the Daily Record newspaper found 284 allegations of racism had been made against officers in a five-year period. None of the 412 officers implicated were dismissed and only nine were disciplined. The head of Police Scotland, Ian Livingston, says he knows the organisation needs to do better. Maria Maguire QC read out his statement on the first day of the inquiry. Let's hear from her. The Chief Constable is aware that it is not enough to be alert to racism and deal with it on a case-by-case basis when it comes to light. Nor is it enough simply to be non-racist. Police Scotland needs to be anti-racist. Racism in the police is not a faraway issue belonging to the US. It has a long history here in the UK. As far back as 1969, officers in Leeds were convicted of assaulting British Nigerian David Oluwale, who drowned in the river after they gave chase. Many have blamed officers directly for his death. In 1981, the Brixton riots were a response to the disproportionate and violent policing of Windrush communities and the increased use of police stop and search. A decade later, the Institute of Race Relations published a groundbreaking report, Deadly Silence, which explored 75 black deaths in custody. Just two years after that, in 1993, teenager Stephen Lawrence was killed in a racially motivated attack by a white gang in southeast London. It took 19 years for two members of the gang to be charged with his murder. A public inquiry, chaired by Sir William McPherson, produced the McPherson Report. It concluded that the failings of the Metropolitan Police in the investigation of Stephen Lawrence's murder amounted to institutional racism. The McPherson report made a raft of recommendations aimed at eliminating racial prejudice and making institutional change. But many, including Stephen's mother, Doreen Lawrence, have expressed frustration about the slow pace of change. In 2017, Alicia Angelini reviewed all deaths after contact with the police. She found a disproportionate number of black people were dying in custody, especially after the use of force. Another high-profile death was that of 37-year-old Christopher Alder, a former paratrooper arrested at a hospital in Hull where he'd been taken after a fight outside a nightclub. He was left face down in a cell and died of positional asphyxia in 1998. A jury later returned a verdict of unlawful killing. Sean Regg, a black musician and producer in London who had paranoid schizophrenia, died in 2008 after being restrained by police in Brixton. These are families who've been ripped apart. 
We could go on. There have been many more recent cases. But these are some of the ones that had happened prior to Sheku's death. I asked Deborah Coles, Director of Charity Inquest, about the issue. This is a long-standing, historic and systemic issue. I mean, Inquest have been uh, monitoring and working on these deaths for 40 years. And we have exposed how a disproportionate number of black people, in particular black men, die following the use of dangerous restraint. And I think for us, one of the most frustrating aspects of this is that despite investigations, reviews, inquests, fatal accident inquiries, this has not resulted in the meaningful change that is so needed to stop what are really very distressing and contentious deaths. So let's hear what the Kirkcaldy police officers told the inquiry about what they knew about high-profile deaths of black men in custody. Some officers can reference deaths in the US, but many claim they were unaware of any in the UK. Here's what PC Craig Walker told the inquiry. At the time of Mr Bio's death, so May 2015, what awareness did you have at that time about public concerns about the use of force by police officers, particularly against black men? Um, a lot of it was getting reported in the news from America that the Black Lives Matters um, campaign was really um, um, forming and that there was a lot of news coverage of uh, deaths of black males at the, at the hands of the police. And was that something that you were aware of? Yes. You keep up to date with the news? Yeah. And to, from your own experience, to what extent was that an issue of concern for the officers in for Police Scotland and in particular in Kirkcaldy? Um, no. Was there any discussions about that? No. Or sharing of information? No. Are you aware of other high-profile cases in the UK, so wider than Scotland, down, down south, for example, in which a person has died in police custody where, well, there's been restraint and or there's issues of a person being restrained face down that had given rise to sort of public discussion and public concern? At that time, no. No, not in 2015. No. You'll be aware of that now, presumably, are you? Yes. Officers were also asked about their own attitudes to race. They were asked whether they had ever been aware of racist comments made by colleagues and about whether it would have made any difference to them if Sheku had been white. All were adamant there was no issues with racism in the force at the time. Here's PC Nicole Short. If Mr Bayou had been white when you arrived at the at Hayfield Road. Mm. Even given the the scene that you saw when you arrived, mm. would you have attempted to communicate with him and de-escalate the situation? Um, it would have it would have been the same approach regardless of his skin colour. Um, I can't emphasise enough how much that wasn't a factor in the the way that we approached Mr. Bio. Um, the thing at the forefront of my mind was that uh, I had no reason to disbelieve that we were going to 
reports of a man in possession of a knife. And I'll, I'll be honest, I just didn't want to turn up to an innocent member of the public having been hurt. And here's Craig Walker. I've always uh, tried to, to uh, deal with people fairly and honestly uh, and equally. Have you ever come across any examples of racial discrimination at Kirkcaldy Police Office? No. Have you ever come across any racist jokes or comments? No. If you did come across anything like that, how would you respond? Um, challenge them. Um, that, that's not acceptable. But the inquiry was also shown footage from Kirkcaldy Police Station's custody suite, where an Edinburgh-based officer accompanying a prisoner of Middle Eastern origin made a comment to PC Brian Geddes about ISIS in the station. Initially, PC Geddes said he didn't remember the incident. Later, he clarified in a written statement to the inquiry that he had raised it with his superiors. Police questioned in the Stephen Lawrence inquiry also consistently denied racism or racist conduct. The report from that inquiry said unwitting racism can arise because of a lack of understanding, ignorance or mistaken beliefs. This inquiry has been interested in how much police officers understood about diversity and equality issues. PC Kelly Good used the word coloured in her statement to describe Sheku, something she later apologised for, claiming she had been young and didn't mean to cause offence. The inquiry also looked at whether officers' attitudes may have been influenced by common stereotypes about black men. They include that they are violent and resistant to arrest. I also asked Deborah Coles from Inquest about this. What we have found is that racial stereotyping of black men as inherently dangerous or particularly like having superhuman strength um, and that those perceptions of dangerousness and criminality results in a police response that rather than assessing a situation using de-escalation skills, which are supposed to be part of the training. It is about that immediate resort to force. In Sheku's case, we noted in the last episode that several of the officers made reference to Sheku's strength and size, but they told the inquiry that this was not connected to racial stereotyping. Here's Nicole Short being asked about that. Are you aware of sort of stereotypes that exist around black people um, specifically in the context of criminal justice for example are you aware that black men may be perceived as having superhuman strength or size no. or being more likely to resist and not be compliant no I don't did you have any assumptions along those lines no we referred earlier to Perk 253, your very first statement, and you described Mr Bio as deranged with superhuman strength and, in my mind, intent on killing someone. Was that based on any perceived stereotype of him being a black man with superhuman strength? No, not, not at all. It's an accurate account of what I came across on that morning. And here's Inspector Stephen Kay being asked about his assertion on a phone call after the incident that Sheku, 5 foot 10 and 12 stone 10, remember, was the size of a house. Looking at that expression now, he's the size of a house, 
Do you have uh, any views about whether that was an expression that was used because Mr. Bio was black? I don't follow. I don't know how that correlates into the colour of his skin. Are you aware of racial stereotypes and language that is used uh, to reinforce those racial stereotypes? That black men are perhaps bigger, stronger, more aggressive, more violent? No, it's something I couldn't say I've been aware of. At the inquiry, officers were also asked specifically about unconscious bias. That's the attitudes that people may have subconsciously due to their upbringing. Life experiences and societal attitudes that affect the way individuals feel and think about others around them. Some officers were familiar with the term. Here's Craig Walker again, this time talking about training on unconscious bias. Do you ever take someone's physical characteristics or skin colour or religion and make assumptions about them? Uh, categorise them that they'll be a particular type of person? Do you ever make assumptions, for example, that a black person is maybe more likely to be a terrorist? No. What, on the training you've had, what did you learn, if anything, about unconscious bias? Um, it's basically along the lines of like that example that you're giving, assuming that somebody who's black is a terrorist, but without actively thinking it, but just being um, almost instinctively and, and reacting to them that way. But similar questions about unconscious bias were put to custody officer PC Brian Geddes. He was less confident. Have you been taught as part of the training you have had about unconscious bias or how to guard against unconscious bias? I would say I probably have, yes, but I, I don't know how long would that, the course of that would have been, what would be mentioned, but so I, Do you understand anything about the concept of unconscious bias? Um, personally, probably not, no. Meanwhile, Alan Payton, who had previously worked as a community liaison officer with the black, Asian and minority ethnic communities in Kirkcaldy, told the inquiry he had no memory of unconscious bias training. Do you remember if you were taught anything about unconscious bias? What is unconscious bias? In the inquiry, Peyton was also asked about statements provided by family members, including his grandfather, that he was racist and hated all blacks. In his evidence, which was recorded rather than being held in public due to his diagnosis of PTSD, he denied all the allegations of racism. He claimed that these were malicious statements connected to a family feud which had nothing to do with the case. Additional evidence given by Peyton and also recorded was due to be broadcast on the second last day of the hearing but was delayed due to submission from his lawyer, Brian McConaughey KC, about the conditions in which it was hurt. The family actually walked out in protest after this development was announced by Lord Brackadale. PC Payton's answer comes in sharp contrast to that of PC Gary Woods, the dog handler requested from Edinburgh on the 3rd of May 2015. He was stood down after Sheku was restrained, well before he reached Hayfield Road. Asked about unconscious bias in the inquiry, he had this to say. Were you given any techniques 
to guard against unconscious bias? Um, as part of the training we would have had, yeah, but I've also kind of researched stuff like that in my, um, my own free time as well. Uh, that it's important to our role that we're dealing with different people all the time. So, and, uh, and do you remember anything that you've learned? Yeah. Do you want to tell us about that? Um, just that unconscious bias is a thing that exists and we have to guard against it in, in situations where you may make decisions based on your preconceived stereotypes of things. Is that something you're conscious in yourself? Yeah. You have unconscious bias and... I think everyone, everyone does in, in a sense, so to guard against it, you have to understand it. And I, th I think I'm, I like to read things, I like to understand things as best I can, so uh, to, to deny that fact is, I think, folly. It's, uh, you know, you're not going to be able to understand people if you, if you don't understand it. Do you yourself, can you, are you able to uh, identify any unconscious bias that you have? Individually, um, maybe. When we first came in, uh, and it was not long after the Stephen Lawrence inquiry, the uh, McPherson report came out, so a lot of the stuff in the initial phases of the police training was to do with the McPherson inquiry, to do with the stuff that happened in the Met at the time. So we were kind of very well sighted that that was a, a main trigger as to why we were doing all the training we were doing at police college to try and understand that right from the start. So again, throughout my life, just the kind of person I am, I like to understand things. I've read a lot of books about um, those kind of inquiries, those kind of situations. So it helps me to be a better police officer. And that's just, uh, I think it's an important thing to do. But yeah, have I, have I as a person probably got inherent biases that I was given by my parents as a child, probably, but if I try to guard against them as best I can, probably, yeah. The inquiry is spending a long time on this aspect to try to ascertain if unconscious bias on the part of the witnesses and officers might have meant Shaker was treated differently, and crucially, if that different treatment might have saved his life. Here's PC Tomlinson. If he'd been white, do you think you would have called for an ambulance sooner? No. This suggestion about when the ambulance could have been called also takes on extra significance, especially when considering something that Nicole Short claimed about why she found Sheku the most frightening, crazy man she'd seen in her life. That's what made it frightening when we turned up and he just was not, there was nothing there, nothing seemed to be kind of sinking in or, or registering, if you like. Several of the officers have spoken about the way Sheku was unresponsive that morning to commands, to CS spray and to baton strikes during restraint. The inquiry also spoke to experts about what the reasons for that might be. One of the key witnesses here was Joanne Caffrey, a former custody sergeant who went on to specialise in training and now gives expert evidence on deaths in custody cases. In wide-ranging evidence, she talked about the actions of the reasonable officer in response to the events that morning. Observations were key, she said they should trigger lots of little checklists in the mind of a reasonable officer. And those observations should include looking for signs of intoxication or mental health crisis. The key question, she claimed, should have been, is a criminal response required or is this also a medical emergency? If you remember in the last episode, we heard that Sheku started behaving very oddly in the early hours of Sunday morning. Something was clearly very wrong. Here's Alan Payton again. How were you aware he was high on His eyes were bulging in his head. Right. So his eyes were bulging out of his head. And 
Anything else you noticed about his eyes or any other any other things you noticed? Well, quite often on a lot of these synthetic drugs, um, you don't feel temperature how you should. Oh. It was pissing from rain and blowing a gale. He's wearing a wee t-shirt. So the fact he's in a short sleeve t-shirt was an indicator to you as well it as his be. eyes. It could be, eh? Joanne Caffey told the inquiry there was a clear response needed from officers if they thought that someone was in crisis, either due to mental health or intoxication. If a reasonable officer is considering intoxication or mental health crisis, Mm -hmm. what does that reasonable officer do? Notifies control for um, medical attention. But officers didn't raise those concerns with the control room. By now, Sheck has been restrained for almost four minutes. According to PC Smith, he's been groaning in the restraint and has now stopped moving. PC Smith says in his statement that the thought that Sheikh could be suffering from excited delirium is what makes him stop and look closer. That's when he notices he has stopped breathing. So this term, excited delirium, that he refers to is a very contentious one. It's been linked to several deaths of black men in custody including George Floyd. Campaigners claim it has been used as a justification for excess force by police. The inquiry heard from PC James Young, who was then heading up training in Police Scotland, that in 2015, officers would have been told that someone exhibiting signs of excited delirium would have behaved in a manic and violent way. He was shown a slide used by Police Scotland at the time, which said those experiencing excited delirium could experience paranoid hallucinations and abnormal strength. CS spray would not work. PC Young also said that he was not happy with the use of the term. Police in England had already stopped using it and by 2015 referred instead to acute behavioural disorder, or ABD. It's an umbrella term for a range of disorders, including psychosis, and it must always be treated as a medical emergency according to police standard operating procedures. So in 2016, PC Young made sure the term ABD was adopted by Police Scotland, as had already been done in England and Wales. There's another issue. What's been described as the double discrimination faced by black men experiencing mental health crisis. Here's what Deborah Coles told us. And I think the other issue I'd I'd, I'd flag up here is that intersection of mental health and race where we've seen a pattern of deaths of black men who are in mental health crisis. Now that could be because their mental health has deteriorated over a a period of time and they haven't had the confidence to go and use mental health services, so there's some issues there. But also people who've got got into crisis because of of use of drugs or or alcohol. And rather than being seen as a health issue, they've been seen as a policing issue. The 2017 Angelini Review also pointed out this connection and made recommendations to counter this. So what role did the use of force play in Sheku's death? In the next episode, we'll be looking at what the inquiry has heard so far about the use of force and about who was in charge that day. Join us then. Find all three episodes of Sheku Bio, The Inquiry, presented by me, Karen Goodwin, and me, Tamiwa Fowler-Shaw, at theferret.scot or wherever you get your podcasts.
The Ferret is an investigative co-op run by and for its members. We believe good journalism changes things. To make this podcast, we've spent hours listening to all the evidence so we can summarise it for you, our listeners. And we need your support to do more. Join us at theferret.scot forward slash subscribe and get three months free with the code PODCASTOFFER. This podcast was written and produced by Karen Goodwin, researched by Tamiwa Fuller and Shaw, recording, editing and sound design by Helena Rafai, original music by Alan Bryden.